You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Women to Watch, an intimate look into the lives of prominent and influential women leaders from around the world and the challenges they faced on their journey. It's the real story behind her title. Join us every week to hear more stories about women from around the world and in your own communities at womentowatch.net. Hello, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco, and it's so great to be back here with all of you after a, a wonderful long holiday weekend for the 4th of July. Um, first up and foremost, I want to give a big welcome to Helm Creative Studio, our brand new producer for Women to Watch. Uh, I'm very excited this week is the very first show that will be done in collaboration with them. So um, stay tuned for some updates and some new creative elements to the show as we move forward. And joining me this week will be Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon. Uh, Mary Gay Scanlon is a Congresswoman uh, based in Pennsylvania. Uh, we're going to be talking with her in just a moment. As always, stay with us during the breaks where you'll hear from our exclusive watch team of on-air contributors, bringing you news and updates from their companies and their industries. And for all things Women to Watch, you can visit womentowatch.net, N-E-T. That's women, the number two, um, watch.net. So now I'm very excited and honored to welcome to the show, Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon. Thank you, Sue. Happy to be here. Great. It's wonderful to have you. Um, and again, the very first, first interview, first show with our new production partner, um, Helm Creative. So um, I'm honored to have you. Um, I wanted to start off and, and have you just talk a little bit about your um, community that you grew up in. I'm not sure most people have heard of Waterfront, New York. I had not. Um, I understand you were born in Syracuse, but raised in Waterfront. What was that community like? So it's Watertown, New York. It's a oh, Watertown. I'm sorry. I'm saying Waterfront. Okay. Yeah, Watertown. It's a community up very close to the Canadian border. So it was very much a, a border community. 
Um, very big, like a lot of Pennsylvania in um, dairy farming is one of the main industries. Um, and it's also home to Fort Drum, the home of the 10th Mountain Division of the U.S. Army. So um, a, a large military presence, very important military presence, as they are often first on the scene around the world. Mm -hmm. um, but it was an industrial town um, coming up through the... Um, through the 1800s and um, had some significant battles nearby in the War of 1812. So a lot of history in the region, um, but you know, primarily a rural economy. And uh, that's where I grew up, but came down to uh, the Philadelphia area, oh Lordy, over 40 years ago um, okay. to attend law school. And I've been here ever since. A wonderful law school, by the way, Penn, yes. right? Yes. Um, Tell me about, so you're one of three girls mm -hmm. and um, you and I had a wonderful intro call before the interview talking about, you know, the importance of women um, in positions, positions of leadership, not just politics. But I wondered if your mom and dad talked at all about gender equality and the fact that having these three girls, you know, you can and should pursue whatever it is that you want. Well, they certainly did. I mean, my mother was an English professor at our local community college. She was one of the founding members of that community college um, and was very active in our community, as was my dad. Um, but I think having um, three girls in the family and, and no boys maybe gave my dad a little extra nudge to uh, being the feminist that he became because, uh, you know, we learned all about uh boat maintenance and car maintenance and home maintenance. And, you know, he, he was always our biggest uh, cheerleader in no matter what we did. Yeah. Um, he was a lawyer, as am I, as were both my grandfathers, but I was the first female lawyer in the family. Um, tell me, and you have a grandfather who was a judge? Yes, my mother's father was a juvenile court judge and actually was president of the Juvenile Court Judges of America in the 60s at a time when the concept of juvenile justice was just coming to the fore. Um, he helped craft the New York State Juvenile Code and the idea that kids' brains are different than adult brains and they don't see consequences the same way mm -hmm. and that um, you know rehabilitation and um, helping kids become able to succeed is, is a more appropriate um, approach for kids than adults. Don't they say, it's surprising to me, the age of a fully formed brain, 25? It's, it's around 25, modern yeah. research says. That's about when the prefrontal cortex develops. And that's formed the basis some, for some of our recent uh, Supreme Court decisions about things like whether or not someone under, um, whether a minor should be sentenced to life imprisonment or death. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, I, I know that from a very young age, you had um, a yearning or a pull towards service. And um, I wondered, you know, what kind of influence did your Irish Catholic upbringing have <laughs> in that? Well, as, as we were talking about the other day, um, it seems as though um, the Irish in America have always had a strong pull towards um, law enforcement, towards teaching, towards public service through elected office. And certainly I saw a lot of all of that um, in, in my family. My dad's family, um, right down through his generation, was pretty much straight descendants from um, Irish Catholics. 
Um, was Colgate University a good fit for you? Um, yes, I loved my time at Colgate. I mean, as I said, Watertown was a, a fairly rural, off the beaten track um, community. I mean, Watertown itself was a city and, and had some industry, although mostly dying off at the time when, when I was growing up. Um, but that whole intellectual life um, and everything was, I just enjoyed it so much. I mean, Colgate itself is pretty far out in the countryside, but um, I did really enjoy my time there and have stayed connected with folks um, over the years. So tell me the moment you decided you were going to be a lawyer. Well, I think all through childhood, I toggled back and forth between wanting to go into law and going into education. Uh, maybe not terribly original, given that's what my parents were. Um, but increasingly over time, I think I gravitated towards law. I was a history major, took a lot of political science classes, um, and really liked that engagement um, in the public sphere and the problem-solving aspect of law, that you know you could take law, apply it to issues that people had, and try to come up with solutions that worked. It's extremely challenging academically, law school itself. And, and I'm always curious whether, you know, did academics come easy for you or did you have to work really, really hard to get, you know, get that B? Um, I think people, you know, have different knacks that, that, that they're good at. Um, I have no eye-hand coordination, but, okay. um, <laughs> but I've loved to read since I was a child. So I think um, reasoning and writing ability are probably the two biggest skills that a lawyer has to develop. And and, um, you know, obviously you have to work very hard to get through law school and such, but I had some of the basics that I needed to get through there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, to me, the, the idea of going to law school and the amount of reading was was overwhelming to me. Mm -hmm. um, just being someone who had to read everything three and four times before I could comprehend it. It's it's definitely, I mean, the, there's, there's a knack as I said, for different things. People are good at different things. And um, this suited me. Yeah. So upon graduation from University of Pennsylvania here in Philadelphia, one of the greatest mm -hmm. schools, um, you went to work as a law clerk. Tell mm -hmm. me, what did you do? What does a law clerk do? What is that job? Well, so this is this was a law clerk with an appellate court in Pennsylvania. It's a great entree to the legal profession for um, graduates, particularly if you have any interest in litigation, you get to, um, or trial work. So you get to work with a judge, see how judges make decisions. You further hone your writing skills because that's a lot. The research and writing is what the clerks usually focus upon. So um, I think at the time that I graduated from law school, um, based upon uh, whatever was current on TV at the time, I thought I wanted to be a public defender. Um, okay. But doing the work that I did with the appellate court, um, I decided maybe not so much. I mean, I still firmly believed in people having the right to representation, but um, began to maybe think about other opportunities um, for service. And, and my first client out of law school actually was something that I've remained interested in, and that was the representation of children and making sure that kids' needs are met through the legal system. So 
Um, I, I got trained, as, as many lawyers in Philadelphia do, by the Support Center for Child Advocates to um, represent kids in the abuse and neglect system and make sure that someone mm-hmm. is speaking up for them and trying to help them get the services and the housing and, and all of their needs met. Yeah. Talk a little bit about for, for me about I had asked you in our intro call about doing that type of work mm-hmm. and seeing that level of, you know, abuse, I'll say, mm-hmm. and how your mental uh, ability to stay focused on what you were achieving through that work kept you from what I think a lot of people would not be able to see that and do that kind mm-hmm. of work, just they don't have the the strength. How did you do that? What did you focus on? I think it was always just focusing on how can I be helpful here? How can I help this kid get through a bad situation? Um, and I, I think when we were talking, talked a little bit about um, one of the useful skills for being a lawyer is to be able to distance yourself a little bit from um, being your client to being your client's representative. And that's something I've found useful being in Congress as well, because um, you're dealing with an issue. You're not, it's, you're representing your client, you're representing your constituents to try to get a result that they want. Um, and so that provides a little bit of separation. But um, with representing kids, there's almost always so much you can do to try to help make the situation better. Um, whether it's connecting the kid with um, mental health supports or trying to find a good foster home or a more permanent home, getting a family the resources they need so that maybe a grandparent can step in and, and provide support for a child or the family unit can be reunified. So um, I guess um, with a lot of things, I've always tried to look at, okay, I can't fix everything, but what can right. I fix? What can I be helpful with how can we make forward progress? Yeah, T- have you worked with Mission Kids? I would imagine. Yes, it's your, yeah, yeah they're a wonderful was, organization. Actually, was just up in their Montgomery County facility last week. Okay, yeah, they're doing great work. I mean, the system that sh- that she created, I think, is so smart um, in just kind of protecting the children that go mm-hmm. through this and and getting to the root of the problem and the truth, you know, sure. in the best way possible. Yeah, sure. And we've got similar efforts that take place in Philadelphia County that they're more in Montgomery County. Um, CHOP has been invested in doing some of the research around trying to make sure that um, the kids are at the center of whatever has to happen legally. Yeah. Um, Tell me about your time. Um, You were on the president, actually, of a local school board and how Mm -hmm. that experience prepared you for politics. Sure. Well, of course, you have to run to be on the school board. So that was my first uh, foray into elected office. It was when my kids were in our local public school. And um, I've occasionally said that um, politics is my anger management problem. It goes back to there being an issue and, you know, getting frustrated at at not seeing solutions or whatever. But we had a, a school construction project that was kind of a mess at our local elementary school. And um, I was president of home and school and got pretty engaged with what was the trajectory? When were the kids going to be allowed back in the building? We weren't getting straightforward answers from the administration. Um, And 
I got recruited to run and ended up running for the school board, ended up serving a couple terms during the course of which I became president of the school board. So it was really helpful as an introduction to Mm -hmm. running for office. There's certain hoops you have to jump through just to get on a ballot, you know, to get registered, um, to, to appear on a ballot and what kind of fundraising do you have to do? Obviously, uh, a little bit different for school board in a small town than it is for Congress, but, um, there's certain basics that you have to get through. And then as we talked about the other day, a little bit, um, you know, doing the homework, understanding the issues and knowing who you are, because even at the school board level, the local political level, people can say and do some kind of crazy things. And I think having a secure sense of your own self, knowing who you are and what you stand for and what you believe, regardless of what someone else may try to project on you, is really helpful because um, it's not easy putting yourself out in the public sphere. Not at all. Um, Did you always have that kind of conviction? No, definitely not. Oh, you did not. But over-preparation can help you get that conviction. Is that right? So, it, oh, so you, if you're prepared, you're feeling more confident. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously that's the, that's true, but it takes, so when I, you know, was kind of doing my research and preparing for this interview today and just um, looking at po- in politics as a whole and, you know, from an outside view, it looks very um, difficult and, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of, um, What's the word I'm looking for? You know, when you're so into an issue and this is the issue you're um, focused on and you get the pushback continually over and over, you have to have a certain amount of uh, diligence, but also the determination that you're going to do what it takes to get it done. And I always wonder if that develops Mm -hmm. over time, you know, or did you have it as a child and then it became stronger through your life experience? Well, I mean, I think this is another area where having been a lawyer is helpful because, again, if you're a lawyer, you prepare a case. It's never like, you know, Law and Order or something on TV. People don't just waltz into a courtroom and start making opening arguments or doing cross-examinations. There's a lot of preparation that goes into that. You have to know what the law is. You have to know what the facts are. You have to do all your homework and then prepare your presentations. So, Um, being on the public stage is a lot like presenting a case to a court or to a jury Um, and and being able to kind of read the moment a little bit. If if your argument isn't going over, how does it need to be adjusted? Knowing what the countervailing arguments are so you can either rebut them or, you know, consider them and decide whether your position needs to change. When you stepped out of law and into politics, did you feel the sense of this is where I belong. This is what I'm meant to be doing. Um, not explicitly that way. It's more of a continuum of doing many of the same things I've been doing, whether it's advocating for kids or working on voting rights or assisting immigrants or, you know, just working for the community in a lot of different ways, issues regarding hunger um, and education it's, it's just a different forum with the same interests and, and doing the same things. In some ways, it felt like, okay, a lot of what I've done has prepared me for this moment, but um, I'm not sure that I would choose politics 
um, as the way to get it done, but for a confluence of circumstances. How about um, something that has surprised you um, stepping into this role? What 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 kind of happens, I'll say, behind closed doors that maybe surprised you about the process and how things work? I have a much greater appreciation for how political parties can function and what, you know, how they help candidates get into a, you know, how they refine candidates, help candidates, you know, prepare to meet the moment of running. Uh, I mean, a, a congressional district these days is representing about three quarters of a million people. And there is no way to go talk to every one of those three right. quarters of a million people. So you do have to have allies and people that you work with both to get into office and then to get anything done, um, you know, once you are in office. I mean, anyone who says, oh, I can solve everything. Well, that's just delusional because you do need allies to pass legislation, to work together, to implement um, legislation. So I do have more of an appreciation for the necessity for and how political parties can work for the public good. Also a little disappointment in how sometimes they work against the public good. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of one thing on a more human level. Um, I've been really kind of amazed and grateful for the very good friends I've made in Congress. That definitely was not a motivating factor was to make friends. But I ran with um, three other women from uh, southeastern Pennsylvania when I ran for Congress originally in 2018 at a time when there were no women representing Pennsylvania in Congress. So uh, Susan Wilde and Chrissy Houlihan and um, Madeline Dean and I um, were running to become women representing Pennsylvania, which um, had, not ha had only happened seven times in the history of the country before us. And... Um, then we were all successful um, in 2018, and it, it makes a big difference. So I've become very close friends with them and also with other people from my class that I came in with, folks like Lucy McBath from uh, Georgia and Veronica Escobar from Texas and Sylvia Garcia from Texas, you know, people who I would never have met otherwise, but um, have become very close with. We're going to go into our first break. And when we come back, I want to talk about what you just mentioned about how it does make a difference to have women in places where decisions, important decisions are being made. Stay with us for our watch team. And we'll be right back with Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon. Welcome back to Philly Watch. So throughout our series, we're going to be featuring incredible women who make Philadelphia Philly. And to honor AAPI Month, we want to kick it off by celebrating Ellen Yin, who is here with us today and who we want to deem as our Woman of the Month. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, yes. Jasmine. Thank you, Ellen, for being here. I know that you've got a lot going on, so we appreciate you stepping in for these two minutes. So I'm going to jump right in. You are an amazing woman. You are a Penn graduate. You are the owner of High Street Hospitality. We know that one of your restaurants has been going for over 25 years, which is amazing. So you know Philly, you know food. So I'm going to ask you a question. There's 30 seconds. Okay. But before you ask the question, I want yes. to give context. Okay. So earlier this year, we launched a campaign. I'm sure you know, come for Philadelphia, stay for Philly. Of course. And so it's all about inspiring travelers to look beyond what they know about Philadelphia and explore the unknown. So they may come for, you know, the Rocky statue, but they end up staying and browsing Renoir. They may come for the Bell in the Hall, but let's be real, everyone stays for the citywide special, which I'm sure you know. Yes. If you know, you know. <laughs> 
So anyone that's coming to Philadelphia, they might come for the cheesesteak, but they should stay for the... All the snacks. So Philly's dining scene has has grown up so much mm -hmm. and there is something for everybody. And my favorite thing to do is to walk around and in a city that I might not know, try all different types of places where I can have like a little appetizer, a little bite here and there. But particularly since it is AAPI month, I just want to celebrate two incredible neighborhoods, okay. Chinatown and mm -hmm. South Philadelphia. Chinatown is one of the best Chinatowns in the country. It has a ton of diversity of different types of food from China and mm -hmm. from um, from Korea as well as um, Vietnam. And then um, South Philadelphia has an incredible Southeast Asian community. And I just want to um, say that the Southeast Asian market on um, at FDR Park is one of the gems of Philadelphia. So if it were me, I would just be eating my way through Philadelphia and um, you know if you want a unique bite these are some great places yeah. to go and I would literally be right next to Ellen eating <laughs> yeah. our way through Philly there it's couldn't a, have been yeah. a more perfect answer to that <laughs> I know I was just gonna say and guess what Philly is so walkable so you could go from Chinatown exactly. to South Philly in one day and be able to explore those bites yes. or do what I do rent the indigo bike oh I love that's the indigo smart bike. yeah so, no. uh, like so. Jasmine said two minutes is not enough with you yeah. so if you want to learn more about Ellen, hear what she has to say, we actually did a podcast episode with her on Love and Grit, which you can find anywhere you stream podcasts. Yep. Season two, episode 23. Yes, so come back next week for more to do in Philly. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to the show. I'm joined this week by Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon. And in the first segment, we kind of went into the break talking a little bit about why having more women in places where important decisions are being made, I think that's the best way to say it, uh, matters. And I'd love to, you know, hear from you on why you think that is true. Sure. I guess it's based both on personal experience and on some of the research I've seen over time. Um, women tend, whether it's nature or nurture, and I think it's, it's elements of both, tend to focus on different issues and have different decision-making styles than men do. Um, Seeing it firsthand when I was on the school local school board, there were seven men and two women. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. When I started, and it was more evenly divided, four or five, um, the last couple of years that I was on the board, um, the guy's primary focus was usually construction and taxes. And women, for a variety of reasons, had usually had more opportunity to be in the classroom, to be interacting more during the school day with the kids and the teachers and such and had different focuses, whether it was school nutrition or um, teachers, you know, non-monetary compensation, workplace issues, um, curricular issues. So we saw that there. And then also decision-making styles, a lot less zero-sum game, you know, that if I win, you have to lose or vice versa, more how do we get this done? And I've seen the same thing in, in Congress, and we've seen it in research. There's the Center for American Women in Politics up at Rutgers. 
And they've done some really interesting research about the types of issues that are addressed um, and how successfully when there are more women um, in, in elected offices. And we're seeing it in Congress now. The issue of maternal mortality has been with this country for quite some time, but it's only um, since 2018 when we had a wave of women entering Congress that we've had the Black Maternal Health Caucus, um, which has put forward a whole bunch of legislation, some of which has already passed and more of which is in the works to address the maternal health crisis in this country. I think one of the other aspects of it is that women also by nature are the ones who kind of are are focused on the collective good. So with the family, the community, right? It's not just solving one problem. So we talk on the show often about the practicality of women who take on all these roles, also as mothers. You have three children of your own. Mm-hmm. And how can we step out of those roles and have impact in a position, you know, uh, in politics, for, for example, um, and still be able to manage, I would say emotionally, all of the other moving parts of our life. How can we do that? Well, one thing that we can do is get a better childcare system in this country, having affordable, accessible, quality childcare for everyone. That's what holds so many women back, not just from entering politics, but from entering or achieving in the workforce in the way that they might want to or in the positions that they might want to. It's been interesting as we've seen more young people coming into um, politics and into Congress, a lot of pushback on the ways things have always been done um, Mm. and things about, you know, can we have more regular scheduling? What are we going to do with respect to um, childcare? Can um, a candidate pay for childcare using campaign funds? I mean, a lot of issues that, you know, weren't dealt with traditionally. So I think we're seeing that um, across our economy. How can women participate and what kind of institutional supports do we need to have? Um, let's let's talk about the issues that are important to you and the ones that you um, focus on specifically, which would be voting rights, education, um, economic gr- growth. Um, how much of your time is divided up just from a practicality standpoint in, in what it is that you do every day in this position mm-hmm. um, is broken up to all of the issues that, that matter to you. <laughs> um, all of the issues all of the time. Um, you know, we do have kind of annual um, goal setting meetings within my office and, and talk about big picture issues that we're trying to push forward. But um, a lot of it occurs Um, When I'm in D.C., I've got my committee work, and that's driven by hearings and um, committee work, as well as some of the caucuses that I work on. So a lot of it is meeting with people, um, seeing what we can push forward um, through hearings and and drafting legislation, et cetera. But in district, it's a lot of meeting with people and how do you get people together? How How can we agree upon what needs to move forward? And then what are the steps to get there? So it it tends to be different um, based on the venue, but um, there's never enough hours in the day. Yeah. Do you feel as though your negotiation skills have improved over time? I mean, you know, getting someone to come to your side is one of the hardest things, especially about important issues, you know, really important issues that matter to people. Sure. Well, I, I, 
hate to sound like a broken record, but again, negotiation was a big part of being a lawyer. Yes. And, you know, people have this image that every case goes to trial, very small percentage go to trial, most of them settle. So um, negotiation was a big part of that. I mean, one thing my father always used to say was, you know, when you there's a dispute with someone, it's like, you're not going to win just by saying your position over and over. You're never going to be able to browbeat someone into submission. You have to look at um, what is their position? How can you appeal to what they want? What is the compromise that gets you at least some of what you want, allows them to have something? Um, a good compromise or settlement means that nobody gets to win. Um, and that's something that's really missing in DC these days. I mean, there's a lot of hyperbole and people just pontificating and not really being willing to come to the table. That's difficult to contend with. I, I would imagine one of the most effective ways is to ask the why of someone who does not agree with you and get mm -hmm. to, you know, what is at the root of their view? Why do they feel that way? Mm -hmm. And do you think that there is enough time allotted to have those kinds of conversations? Mm -hmm. you yeah, that's definitely one of the things we've been dealing with. I did serve on the um, House Select Committee on Modernizing Congress, and a lot of what we talked about was how we could find more time for members of Congress to just have that conversation time. I mean, one of the great things about having TVs in Congress is that people can see what's going on. There's a transparency there. But it also leads people to be very rigid in their positions. They don't want to go out there and say something. And then maybe after they get more information, they might change their mind. But right. if they're already on camera and taped as saying one thing, they don't want to be a flip-flopper. Right. And there's others who want to just, you know, use it as an opportunity to grandstand and say outrageous things to get attention or make more campaign contributions or something. So there are downsides of having that level of transparency. But um, one, a lot of what we talked about was in the hyper-pressurized environment that we have in Congress now. I mean, we're there usually for a four-day period because you have to allow um, time on either end of the week for people, particularly from Hawaii or Idaho or, or someplace more remote than from Philadelphia, to be able to get to the Capitol and then to get home. So we talked a lot about how we could adjust the work week to provide more time for members of Congress to interact with each other, to get to know why um, someone holds a view and where there might be more common ground. Um, traditionally, that can happen in committee work or caucuses. And um, I think right now the caucuses are the place where I've found um, the strongest ability to work with folks um, who might hold different views on a lot of issues. So I'm, I'm uh, chair of the Legal Aid Caucus, based in large part upon the work I did before coming to Congress. Also, the Foster Youth Caucus. And I said my first client was a child who was a, a foster child. And um, also youth mentoring. And I've done a lot of work around that. So those are issues where you have members of both parties involved for a variety of reasons. And we can work together on solutions around a particular issue. So um, that's an opportunity, but the, the lack of time and the pressures of just how many issues Congress has to address does make it difficult to get to know people in the way that you might want to. And of course, COVID 
um, you know, where people had to socially distance, literally yes. distance yes. from each other. Right. Um, right. And for a period of time, masking as well. So you don't have all those facial cues. All of that puts a, a cramp in trying to get to know people better and, and try to find that common ground. Do you think it's different today than it was, you know, hundreds of years ago in um, simply the human beings, you know, by default, um, I would say, I don't want to say are defensive always, but, you know, when it comes to two people coming together with opposite views and trying to to come to a conclusion, um, I don't know that human nature has changed, but has politics changed Mm-hmm. because of what you were talking about, you know, that the um, the public can see and hear and mm-hmm. know what's happening every mm-hmm. day, all day long. Mm-hmm. Is that an added pressure for, for politicians? I, I think it, it can be, and it certainly has, as I suggested, had some negative effects. I mean, there have been times throughout our history that were very fraught. I mean, in the lead up to the Civil War, we had uh, members of Congress caning each other into, you know, uh, bloody pulps in Congress, um, which is fairly high tension, I guess you could say. Um, <laughs> but it, we do seem to be in in the somewhat unique um, time period right now, where so much of politics is scorched earth, and and that does seem to be. Um, a relatively recent change, some tactics that came in with um, Speaker Gingrich and such. Um, so, um, you know, based on conversations with folks who've been there a lot longer than I have, um, a willingness to compromise, a willingness to work together for the public good is often lacking right now. There's there's a lot of people scrambling for power rather than trying to serve their communities, it seems. That's a shame because that is that is what we are seeing and feeling as people that are mm-hmm. not um, in Washington. And so to hear you say that, that that's in fact... Well, it's, it's disheartening because I think the majority of folks going to Congress um, want to be helpful. Certainly, I, one of the things that I have found so interesting about the class I came in with in 2018 was it was a lot of people that felt we were at a real inflection point for our country. And it was a lot of people like myself who'd not really been engaged in politics. This was not a life goal. People who'd been doing things in their communities and being helpers in different ways um, but that said, no, right now it feels like my country needs me and I can do more. So I should do more. So people with just a wide range of experiences, whether um, working in green energy or public health or, um, you know, community volunteers, Lucy McBath, who whose son was killed um, in a shooting at a gas station because he was playing his music too loud. I mean, people who just came with a lot of different experiences and interests and said, nope, now's the time I have to step up and serve my country. Um, And I think because of that, um, having to stay in Congress isn't always the primary goal. It's to get change and to move things for the good of the country. And if those decisions or or if those votes get me voted out, then fine. Um, you know, it's that's not going to be the driving force. And, you know, people who can get a little bit frustrated with the pace 
of change in DC because they're used to going out and making things happen. Right. So, right. Um, that's, that's a frustration and, and, you know, how can we, how can we move things, um, along? I want to talk to you a little bit about your role as a mother. You know, mm-hmm. you have three children, three grown children. Yes. And I want to know what worries you the most, you know, what keeps you up at night when you think about your children and their lives and their future? Well, I think it's, you know, wanting to see them have happy and healthy lives. I mean, worrying about where our economy is, worrying about um, issues of national security, working, worrying about issues of community safety with the escalation of gun violence in recent years. Um, you know, wanting to leave them a world and, and the opportunity to have more opportunities and, and happiness and health and everything than I have. So um, those, those are the things I, I joke to my husband that the only time I get a really good night's sleep is usually probably Thanksgiving or or over the holidays when all the kids are under one roof. Right. <laughs> You're seeing them phone. and talking to them. Yeah. And not yeah. worry. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a life mantra, um, a philosophy that keeps you grounded and, and calm, not worrying when the big stuff happens and the big stuff breaks and it's the problems that are just too big for any one of us mm-hmm. um, to fix? What? I mean, there's a, a couple things that kind of fall back on I me. Mean, one is, what can I do? How, how can I help? How can I make a difference? Who do I need to talk to? Knowing that I can't solve everything. That's yeah. a hard one. Um, but um, <laughs> you're a fixer. It sounds like you're a fixer. <laughs> you need to fix things. <laughs> well, and, you know, and, and that, that um, saying about stop me before I volunteer for something else, you know? <laughs> Because sometimes it's like, oh, well, just, you know, with some effort here, we could get this done. But, you know, learning to prioritize and trying to, you know, not spread oneself too thin, that's that's mm-hmm. definitely a challenge. But, okay, where could we make a difference or who could we connect with to make a difference? That's one thing. Um, sort of a family mantra is sometimes it's just about showing up, right? Um, you make a difference by showing up, even if it's just to listen to someone and hear their problem, even if it's just to, um, often it was the, the whole family has been involved in foot races. You know, you show up and you have a good day and no one else over the age of 60 is running that day. You come home with a medal, you know? Um, <laughs> you know? So it's- have, you know, have any of your children expressed an interest in, in politics? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> they know too much. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they they have been fabulous. They have been huge supporters. They've come home and they've canvassed with me and they brought their friends and they've been absolutely wonderful um, as I took a very serious deviation from the life they grew up with. I mean, um, yes. most of the time that they were in the house, um, I was the one whose schedule was more flexible. And so I was... Um, you know, holding down the fort <laughs> often. Yeah. So to suddenly have me, oops, sorry, I'm in DC or whoops, I have to go on a CODEL to the Northern Triangle and the Southern border or something. That's been a change for the whole family. But my husband and kids have been hugely supportive and have rolled with the punches. So I couldn't do it without them. 
Um, I would say it's a, it's a privilege, you know, to be in your position. And I'm right. wondering if there's someone you would love to meet, someone you would love to have a conversation with, um, given the opportunity, mm-hmm. worldwide even. Wow, that's, hadn't really thought about that. It's been a, an amazing four and a half years since I jumped into this and I've gotten to meet a lot of people that I never would have, you know, thought of, of having that opportunity. Probably um, the person I have met who's been the most inspirational was John Lewis. I mean, uh, the civil rights icon, just such a beautiful spirit, so grounded in his faith and his belief in, in what's the right thing to do and, and the need to persevere um, against the odds and against mm. um, some really extreme opposition. Um, my husband and I had the opportunity to go on an interfaith civil rights pilgrimage that he used to run to Alabama, um, bipartisan. You would go to um, uh, Birmingham and Montgomery and the sites of many of the civil rights conflicts in our country and meet with people who marched with him, who were in the church when it was blown up. Um, we met with George Wallace's daughter who has reconciled with John Lewis um, and the need for um, forming the, the beloved community. So um, having the opportunity to meet someone who was just such a beacon, that was pretty amazing. Wow. Yeah, that must have been a wonderful experience. It was. And again, revealing, you know, the, that truly at the end of the day, all humans are the same, yearning mm-hmm. for the same thing, mm-hmm. despite political views. Um, mm-hmm. We just have a minute left. And I'd sure. love for you to just, if there's a woman watching and she's contemplating stepping out more publicly, mm-hmm. what advice would you leave her with? Um, always do your homework, reach out. Um, people are only too happy to talk with you, provide guidance, um, trust yourself. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you're interested in that kind of service, then um, there's a reason for it. And you probably know a lot more than you think you do. Um, trust those relationships. That is an area where women excel in having yeah. those relationships. Um, give me a home and school mom over a political operative any day because they'll get so much more done in such an organized fashion. Um, <laughs> you know. Um, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And they say that women have to be asked to run in a way that men don't. I mean, that's where I say, trust yourself, um, mm-hmm. and, and know your value as, as yeah. some say, um, you know, a lot, you have so much to offer and go for it. Yeah. That's great advice. Great advice. Listen, uh, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show. And I thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here. Well, thank you. And and it's great to be able to see this. I look forward to seeing your series. Terrific. Thank you so much. Um, Stay tuned for our watch team and I'll be right back. From Philadelphia to the Lehigh Valley and everywhere in between. For 150 years, Penn Community Bank has been a part of your neighborhood. Helping businesses start, supporting families as they grow, and staying connected to the people and places that make this region special. 
It's who we are and where we're from. Penn Community Bank. Here we are and here we grow. Welcome back to the show. That's it for another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco, and it was great to have Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon on the show this week. I want to say thank you to Helm Creative, our brand new partner, and a certified woman-owned production team that we've producing the show for us each and every week. Stay tuned for my interview next week with Maury Taharapur. She is a global negotiation expert and an author. Thanks always to our sponsors and our watch team as well for their segments within the show each week. Have a great week, everyone. We are CHOP, and we can't wait to show you around. We are the nation's first children's hospital. Now, a care network with more than 50 locations that continues to expand. Three state-of-the-art research buildings with 1.5 million square feet of space. We have grown from 12 beds 165 years ago to nearly 600 beds and one of the best children's hospitals in the world. We have a level one trauma center, 11 floors of patient units, more than 20 operating rooms, first of its kind delivery unit for babies with birth defects, a separate cardiac operative and catheterization suite, and places to learn, like our internationally recognized simulation center, We have trained generations of leaders in the field of pediatrics. We are world leaders in medicine, surgery, and science. One of the top recipients in NIH funding for pediatric research. In this building, pioneers in CAR-T therapy, mitochondrial disease, brain tumors, hyperinsulinism, and other rare diseases. Here, groundbreaking work in fetal surgery, genetics and genomics, and neurology. In our newest building, leaders in social determinants of health, clinical informatics and epidemiology, autism, trauma and injury prevention. Our patients come from every state and 115 countries. These challenges requires the best and the brightest. We are passionate about pediatrics. We are motivated to make a difference in the world and in our community. We are a team. We are CHOP.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.